I am going to read from Titus chapter 2, if you want to follow. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to, be, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your precious word to us. We ask, Lord, as we open the word together that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, there you've got the gospel right there, haven't you? I could, it, the, the Bible preaches itself. We could almost stop there. But um, no, I'm going to stay here a bit longer. So Titus is a, a, it's a cracking book. It's written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of his shorter letters. It's only three chapters long, uh, quite brief to the point, which I like. He wrote this letter to a chap called Titus. And he'd left Titus on the island of Crete to look after the churches there and to make sure that they stayed on a steady course. I've jumped straight into chapter 2, but I think you'll find it worthwhile, very worthwhile, to check out chapters 1 and 3 when you get a chance for a bit more context. And it won't take long. Now, I work for a holiday company in its IT department. And like many companies, the directors want this to be the best company in its sector. We're an agency. We connect holiday makers to owners of holiday homes. So if someone's got a place that they'd like to rent out, we help them to get bookings. And if someone wants to go on holiday, we help them find a suitable property at a suitable time. So for the company, being the best, it covers three things. Being the best company for owners to rent out their properties, being the best company for holiday makers to book a holiday, and being the best company to work for, and that's, that's the stated goal. I was talking about this with a colleague of mine recently, and he said, it's, it's all very well wanting to be the best, as long as that doesn't mean being the biggest. 
For him, it wasn't about beating our competitors. He was more concerned about the way the company operates. Do we look after our staff? Do we look after our customers, our owners? Do we treat people well and with integrity? Do we do what we say we'll do? The point that he was making was that if we focus on doing things well, all the other things, more customers, more properties, happier staff, all those things would follow naturally. His view that was that we shouldn't get fixated on figures, numbers, profit, the bottom line. Instead, we look at our behavior. He reckons that good behaviors produce good outcomes. Now, as far as I know, my colleague isn't a Christian. And this company is definitely a secular company. But all the same, this conversation, it reminded me of Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus is speaking and he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Jesus was saying, don't run after stuff. Don't worry about your clothes or where your next meal is coming from. Don't pursue results. Run after God, and the other things will follow. Treat your customers well, and they'll not only come back, but they'll tell their friends about you. Treat your staff well, and they will be motivated and work hard and consider it a joy. So there's a spiritual principle here, and it's one that I think even the world understands to some extent. We can't control outcomes. We are not God. We can only control our own behavior and our choices. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Now, we've got to be careful that we don't distort this principle and turn God into some kind of cosmic slot machine. You put your coin of good behavior into the slot, and out comes a jackpot of blessings. Jesus wasn't saying that we should seek God's kingdom first so that God will give us stuff. He was reassuring us that God will look after us. In fact, this section in Matthew 6 actually begins, do not be anxious. With anxiety gone, you take your eyes off your circumstances and place them on Christ. And we know, because we know his character, that God will be gracious to us and meet our needs according to his wisdom, according to his understanding of our needs. And that's not because of our good behavior, that's because of his grace. So I'm saying all of this because Titus 2 actually focuses quite a lot on behavior. But as we go through the chapter, hopefully we'll see that we behave well not because we are trying to manipulate God. No, our choices our actions are governed by our gratitude to God, our love for him. And because we're living in hope, relying on his promises, looking always to Jesus, living for him. And all these things will be added to us. Titus 2 begins with a verse which I guess we could say is a mission statement for all preachers and teachers of the word. It says, But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So as we preach, as I preach, we need to make sure, absolutely certain, as certain as we can be, that we aren't putting words 
into God's mouth. The things that we preach, the things that we teach, they match up to his word completely. In fact, in the previous chapter in Titus 1, Paul's written in very strong terms against people who are misleading the church. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Guide people towards spiritual fruit, towards living a life that honours Jesus. Now, I'm conscious that here at Freedom Church we're a mixed bunch, if I can say that kindly, aren't we? Some of us have been Christians a short time, some of us for many years, and some of us haven't yet given up control and accepted Jesus' rule. Some of us have studied the Bible for many, many years or taken a theology degree. Some of us haven't picked up the Bible for a long while. Maybe never. What we all have in common is that once we've made a commitment to Christ and every single day thereafter, we need to be looking to understand what it is that God wants from us. How do we live now? We're not in charge of our own lives anymore. Now, as it happens, we weren't in charge of our own lives before we became Christians either. We were slaves to sin. But we had this kind of illusion of control, at least. So Paul's going to help us out here. Um, How do we live? Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This is what it looks like to live God's way. It's not that we simply decide that we're going to be good from now on. No, this is a work of the Holy Spirit within us. So I see this chapter, Titus 2, as a kind of way of taking our spiritual pulse. Am I sober-minded? Am I dignified? That's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer me. (laughs) Do I show self-control? As if not, something's wrong, and I need to repent and take that to God. If I'm not measuring up to his word, this is a reason to seek his help. Not to beat ourselves up or feel guilt, just to say, God, I'm blowing it here. Please change me. I repent. Let's stick with verse 2 for a minute. Older men. Paul addresses older men first. Younger men aren't off the hook. In fact, he says the same thing to both groups. Be self-controlled. But he addresses older men first. Why? Well, it's not a trick question. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 13.11, 1 Corinthians 13.11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The hope is that as we grow and mature, we learn, we gain experience, we put away childish things. If we don't get what we want, we don't have a tantrum. And even the world knows this. An adult who has tantrums is a dysfunctional adult. With God or without God. We grow past such childish ways. But it's not simply that we ought to be maturing as we get older. Paul also knows that as we get older, unfortunately, we also have a tendency to pick up bad habits. We need to put those away too. Older men are to be sober-minded. What does Paul mean by sober-minded? Does he simply mean don't get drunk? So when we're sober-minded, 
in our right minds, we're not quick to react. We don't fly off the handle. We don't panic. If someone insults us, we don't insult them in return. We're not motivated by self. We're not looking to protect our reputation. We're not looking for a fight. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is a portrait of a sober-minded man. He knows who he is in Christ. He knows what he's been taught and what he believes. He responds to people with love and compassion. He is not anxious. He knows that his future is secure. So how do we stay sober-minded? Let me ask a different question. How do we stay sober? That's fairly simple. We don't drink too much alcohol. We don't drink... We, instead, we drink things that are good for us that don't warp our minds. So how do we stay sober-minded? Well, we're careful about what we put into our minds. We don't spend endless hours consuming TV programmes that relentlessly bombard us with the agenda of the world or the agenda of Satan. Show me a person who cares more for the word of God than for the latest soap opera and I will show you a sober-minded person. Show me a person who spends more time in a Bible study than in checking out all the nonsense on Facebook and I will show you someone in his right mind. And to be perfectly honest with you all, I'm not feeling very much in my right mind right now. We've got this saying in IT, garbage in, garbage out. If we fill our heads with garbage, stuff that entertains but doesn't edify, doesn't build us up, things that promote any worldview but God's, we can expect garbage out. Now, the last five or six decades have seen massive changes in public morality, if there is such a thing as public morality. Behaviours that were unacceptable and punished severely, are now not only okay, but applauded. And this cultural change, I would say, is inevitable when we're constantly exposed to the teachings of the world. Drip, drip, drip. EastEnders, drip, drip, drip. Newspapers, drip, drip, drip. Video games, popular books, Twitter. Bit by bit, our morality is eroded. It wears away. Be sober-minded. Let's not... Let's fill our things, fill our mind with things that keep us on God's straight and narrow path. Not with things that idiotize us, that leave us thinking that black is white and white is black. Still in verse 2, older men are to be dignified, self-controlled. Dignified, that's an interesting word for Paul to use, isn't it? Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. These are all a continuation of the same thought. Grow up. Stop playing the fool. Let your actions be guided by the Holy Spirit. Dignified. 
worthy of respect, not constantly mucking around at times that call for serious attention, not throwing fun out the window, but recognizing our responsibility as older men, as examples, as ones whose behavior is constantly watched as role models. I've just realized I keep calling myself an older man. I suppose I just need to accept it now. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> Self-control, where does that come from? Well, it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which we find in Galatians 5.22. 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit. This means that this grows in us as we grow in Christ. And so it's not something that we have to conjure up. As we submit our lives to him, we accept that he is in charge now. We listen to his word, and this fruit will follow. Now verse 2 continues. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now I notice this is a very similar thought that we find at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, in hope, not letting go of the things that we've learnt from God, remembering why we accepted him, why we accepted Jesus. The devil, the world, our own flesh the sinful part that's inside us all. They will try and tear away the message of the gospel. And since the very beginning, the devil has been saying, did God really say? Did God really say that you're his child? Did God really say he loves you? Surely he's just using you. You were much happier before you became a Christian. Lies. We were dead in our sin. And Christ has made us alive. Don't forget that. We are loved, accepted, forgiven. We have a future. We have hope. Remain sound in faith. Remain sound in love. Have you ever noticed how often when someone asks Jesus a question, he doesn't actually answer it? For example, look at the story of the woman at the well. You can find this in John 4, amongst other places. The woman at the well in John 4. This is a woman that, according to his Jewish heritage, Jesus should have avoided, like the plague. And this is a woman whose life was full of sin. So, what was Jesus doing, respectable Jewish man? What was, what was he doing, talking to her? If you have a chance, read the story if you're not familiar with it. We're just going to jump into verse 9. John 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus loved that woman. He treated her as a person, not as an enemy. I think his words may sound a bit stern, but underneath them, can you read the love in there? The compassion. He didn't answer a question. He reached out to her in love. Sound in faith. Sound in love. Sound in steadfastness. In Romans 12, 11, Paul says, do not be 
slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Basically, wake up. Keep going. Keep your eyes on the prize. Older men, not looking at anyone, are you listening? Verse 3, older women likewise. Stop. That word likewise is very helpful. It's, Paul uses it twice in this passage, in this chapter. And in both occasions, it's a bridge between comments to men and comments to women. Likewise, in the same way, we don't have a gender divide. Now, some people accuse the Apostle Paul of being a misogynist, of hating women, of singling them out for different treatment. But no, here we see these standards are expected of us all. So I hope, ladies, you didn't tune out then when I was speaking to the men. Everything I've said so far applies to both genders. Did you tune out? Verse 3. All the women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Reverent in behaviour. Reverent. Many, many years ago, when I was 17 or so, I uh, went to visit my sister at university. And she's about three years older than me, and she was studying medicine at Liverpool Uni. And one of the things that we did whilst I visited was to go and see the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool. Now, although I was brought up in church schools for most of my early years, and I wasn't any stranger to Anglican buildings, I was brought up as a charismatic. And a lot of my early church experience was in the house church movement, where you've got groups of 10 to 20 people meeting together in someone's house, and that was church. And I, even as a child, was encouraged to have visions, to prophesy, to seek God's voice for myself, to value the voice of the Holy Spirit, to avoid legalism and religiosity. So, rightly or wrongly, these old ecclesiastical buildings, these ancient churches and halls, they were symbols to me of a religion without life. So I wasn't particularly respectful of buildings or places, though I fully believed that God's presence could be manifest as something you can feel in a particular place or time. So we visited Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral, as I say, and there's me, this young, enthusiastic, and rather arrogant Christian. I'm expecting very little from this building other than maybe some interesting architecture. Now, people have got different views about cathedrals, don't they? Some view them as an incredible waste of time and money, expensive to build, expensive to maintain. How can they spend all that money on a building when there's such poverty in the world? If you know your Bible well, that thought might be reminding you of something. John 12. John 12. Jesus is spending some time with his friends Lazarus, Martha and Mary and some others, and they're holding a dinner in his honour, and at some point, Mary takes some really, really expensive perfume and chucks it all over his feet and then wipes it off with her hair. I mean expensive. This stuff blows Chanel number no. 5 out of the water. We know from the text it was worth a year's salary. So let's conservatively say that's 15 grand of perfume gone in a flash. So Judas steps in, and we can see what he says, starting at 
verse 4 of John 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus responds, verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Mary was doing something of great significance. The value, the cost of the perfume wasn't important. Our God, after all, has unlimited resources. He does expect us to be good stewards, sensible in how we handle our money. But if we run short serving him, is that a problem? Is God, when we ask him for help, is he going to put his hands in his pockets and find that there's nothing there? In the kingdom of heaven, the streets are paved with gold. Gold, I tell you. That's extravagance. So, how can so much money be spent on a building? A building that was built to glorify God and to provide a place where faithful saints can gather together and worship him. I'll let you answer that question in your own hearts. I know there are counter-arguments. I know the church can be guilty of wasting money and completely ignoring the poor, but when you look in Scripture and you see the designs for the temple that was built for God, how lavish it was, the expensive materials that were used, the high quality of craftsmanship he demanded, maybe you can see why centuries later people sought to honour God in building such grand places of worship. And that cathedral is amazing, let me tell you. And I don't know what I was expecting, arriving there with my youthful arrogance and preconceptions, but when I walked through the cathedral, I had one overpowering sensation. Awe. Reverence. So we're in verse 3 and Paul says he's looking for reverence in our behaviour. What is that reverence? Well, we're, we're walking as people who have a living relationship with the creator of the universe. You know, sometimes people talk about God as if he's their mate. Honestly, I cringe. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says this, Matthew 10.28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is not our mate. He is our Father. Yes, we boldly approach the throne of grace, as the writer of the Hebrews says, but we boldly approach it and bow down or fall prostrate on our faces. This is the Lord of all creation. He is not our mate. Be reverent in behaviour. What we do, we do for God, who sees all. Colossians 3.23, Sharon's favourite verse. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But we're accountable to God for everything that we do. Let's remember that and be reverent in behaviour. 
Verse 3 still. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Technical point, and forgive me for this, because I used to be a solicitor, forgive me for that too. The, the, <laughs> the difference between slander and libel, slander is lies spoken about a person and lies, libel is lies written about a person. And a, a character in a TV program I was watching recently said, that's slanderous libel! And I wanted to leap up and shout at the telly, that's impossible! But I'm a bit lazy, so I just groaned a bit and feebly shook my fist with impotent rage. <laughs> Come on, I can't be the only one that does that. <laughs> right, so legal lesson aside, we're not to be slanderers. We're not to speak evil of others. And why not? Well, if you read the Ten Commandments and then read what Jesus says about bad attitudes towards people, he equates that with murder. Are we murdering people's reputations? Are we turning people against them? Are we trying to make ourselves look better by making others look worse? And don't be slaves to much wine. No, we are to be slaves 100% committed to Christ. We cannot serve Christ and Jack Daniels. And some of us here know from first-hand experience what happens when you travel too far down that path. Self-control in everything. And the verse finishes. They are to teach what is good. And this is part of our mission as we grow and mature. Whether or not in God's grace we become parents, we all become mothers and fathers in the faith. Let us teach what is good. Let's be examples in how we walk, how we talk, how we behave, how we decide to spend every 24 hours of every day that God gives us. And this teaching what is good, it means helping others to learn for themselves how to make wise choices, how to be discerning, how to tell a sound preacher from a charlatan. That's right. Even after this sermon, if someone says to you, not really sure about what Rob said, you're there to help them discern between the precious truth that came from God's throne and the human so-called wisdom that comes from my own vanity or attempts to be smart. So I'll just ask you one thing. When you're having these conversations, be kind. And so we're about 30 minutes in, and we've covered, what, three verses? See how rich the Word of God is. Let's leave this here for now. There's some sobering thoughts here, aren't there? And we've got good cause for reflection. In Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And sometimes it's held up as a mirror to reflect us, and sometimes the reflection is not good. And we are sorry, Lord, for where we fail you, but we thank you that we don't have to achieve anything by trying we can just submit to you. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. If we repent, you always accept and forgive us. We thank you for your love, Lord. And as these seeds are sown in our heart, the seed of your word, we ask, Lord, that you cause it to grow and flourish into something beautiful that better reflects Jesus Christ. Amen.